Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I know everybody's talking about the debt limit, and it's not that they shouldn't be talking about the debt limit. They should. This is a subject. It's a story. It's a story of democratic intransigence. It's a story of how media spins as opposed to reports. And yes, it's a story of total incompetence. The idea that we can't figure out that we have to pay the bills. Although, if you listen to people like Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, he's saying that we can pay the bills. That we have money coming in because we have money coming in. The idea is we can't borrow to spend. We can't open a credit card to then spend, create more debt, paying off other credit cards because we don't have the statutory authority to raise the debt limit. Well, the House Republicans put that through. They passed legislation to raise the debt limit. They just wanted to keep spending levels at 2022 levels. Democrats are screaming and yelling that that's not good enough because they want to spend more. Imagine wanting to spend more in this environment. So when we talk about how pathetic uh, they all are, and we do refer to them as they properly, it's because there's no recognition that there simply isn't money. You can't keep spending at these levels. The spending has always been the issue. It's been the issue for as long as I've been really active in politics. It's been the issue for 30 years before that and possibly before that. The spending, of course, is the issue. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com, T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z, TonyKatz.com. Republicans pass uh, a debt limit increase, no increase in spending. Democrats say, that's what the Republicans do. The Democrats say, how dare you? You want to cut payments to to veterans and veterans benefits. Well, that's, that's just precious. If I don't increase the amount of spending, you decide that it's a cut. It's just duplicitous garbage. So people should be paying attention to the debt limit for more reasons than just whether or not we're going to default. I don't, I don't know if we're going to pay our debts or not. You, I, I, I voted for quote-unquote professionals to handle these things. I voted for people, not even professionals, who am I kidding? I voted for people to do this stuff. They don't do this stuff, that means I just get to replace you, right? I just replace you because you're not good enough to do the job. That listen, as, as an employer, which I am, and you are of these people, sometimes we have to recognize that we've employed the wrong person and we have to fire them before it's too late. It's not the only subject out there. As is reported in the Washington Times, thousands more migrants released into U.S. before order. I'm sorry, what? We know that before the removal or the, the expiration, I should say, of Title 42 at the border. The Biden administration released thousands of illegal immigrants into the country. Title 42 existed because we had this declaration regarding COVID and this, this health emergency. And Title 42 would allow the United States to expel people who've come into the country, saying we've got a health emergency, we can't keep you here, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And just send them back uh, across the border. Now, some people argued that didn't really do as much as we would have liked because it uh, it encouraged people to return and return and try again and try again because there was no other penalty to it. This is different than Title Eight. Title Eight has been in effect since the 40s, 
1940s, of course. And what Title VIII says is that if you're entering the country illegally, you can be subjected to a five-year ban from re-entering the nation. So there is some, uh, some people would argue, some teeth to Title VIII versus the speed of which you can utilize Title 42. But Title 42 is gone. They expected a tremendous number of people to stream over the border. We saw people who were amassing all over the place, over 150,000. We saw that people were being stopped with actual razor wire being used at the border. And people who are trying to cross illegally should be stopped. Men, women, and children should be stopped from crossing illegally into the country. That doesn't make me mean. It doesn't mean I hate kids. It means you got to have a standard. A border is a standard. Nations that are sovereign have borders, and it's okay to note it. It's acceptable. And anyone who says otherwise doesn't believe in borders. And if they don't believe in borders, everybody who's crossing illegally can go stay in their house. And they have to stay in that house. Otherwise, boom, back across the border they go to wherever country they came from. When you see grown men, Chinese nationals, crossing the border, well, that's when you know the border's got some serious problems. And I saw it with my own eyes. I'm going back. I am going back to the border. It's just a question of when we're able to set it up this summer. Oh, it's going to be hot. But let's go back to the story. Title 42 expires. They expect a lot of people to come across the border. So what does the Biden administration do? The Biden administration says, hey, you know what? We're going to put you out on parole with conditions. And parole with conditions is you go into the United States We'll contact you at a later date and we'll tell you when your court date is. People claim asylum at the border like it's their job. They're absolutely lying about it. They're taught to lie about it from these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations, all of which I believe are guilty of treason and these people should be tried. I would shut down the NGOs. They teach people to lie at the border. They teach them to lie. So we're all perfectly, perfectly clear. But what happens is when you claim asylum, okay, we check this, we check that, we go through that. Here's your court date. Three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, enjoy America. Where we're going to say, you got a sponsor, we send you there. There you go, and you're done, and you're finished, and, and, and that's it. Well, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Three years, four years, five years. These people aren't going to see a courtroom at all. At least that's what they're betting on. Because who knows if they'll even show up for the court appearance. And you're not 100% sure where people have gone. So how are you going to track them? How are you going to follow them? Etc. We already have a problem here. The parole with conditions says, you know what? We'll get with you later. So these people were released into the country without even having a court date. It took a judge, Judge Kent Weatherell II, a restraining order, that took effect just before midnight on May 11th. But before that went into effect, the parole with conditions was 8,807. A senior official at Customs and Border Patrol, David Bamiller, had told the judge 6,413, but it turns out that it was 8,807. 
Over 2,500 people were released after the restraining order took effect. 8,000 illegal immigrants were simply told, enter, enjoy, have fun. I ask you if that's a story we should be paying attention to. Because it seems to me, once again, the Biden administration does not give a damn about the rule of law. They care about the rule of progressives. And the progressives believe in open borders. And Joe Biden, being so weak and so feckless, so awful and so hideous, based on his actions, has stated clearly he doesn't care what the progressives want. That's exactly what he's going to do. This is not a centrist. This is not a collected man. This is a guy who will do whatever the progressive left tells him to do. And the proof is this, amongst many other things that we're seeing. There is nothing where Joe Biden has looked at the political left or the progressive left and said, nah, except maybe one or two environmental things. Maybe, maybe. But in the vast majority of cases, the 90% plus of cases, whatever the progressives want, you got it. Whatever the progressives want, okay. Whatever the progressives want, no problem. Again and again. You think Joe Biden is his own man? You think Joe Biden has any pushback on these people whatsoever? You think he's got any backbone? You think he has any soul? You think he has decency? I'll give you an example. If you ask me if Joe Biden loves his children, I believe Joe Biden loves his children. I believe it kills Joe Biden inside to see what Hunter has become. He desperately wants his son to be well. He has this belief in his son that a father would have for a son. He wants to have faith in his son. If you're a father, you might know exactly what I'm referring to. And if you're not a father, you can imagine it. That as much as we find Hunter Biden detestable for reasons he created and he has shown us that he should be detested for, Joe Biden is a father. He wants his son to be okay. He wants his son to be well. He wants his son to live up to his promise, something that you would want as a dad. Is there any question Joe Biden mourns the death of Bo Biden? Not A question in my mind. It eats at him every single day. He loved his son. He misses his son. Those two things are true. I can say that about Joe Biden and and his family from now until the end of time. You can say that about Joe Biden. But I'm not here to be concerned with Joe Biden as a father. Because Joe Biden as a father is of no concern to my daily life. When 8,800 illegal immigrants just get let into the country with no court date, I have to concern myself with Joe Biden, the president. And that guy has failed miserably. Joe Biden won't accept the fact that Republicans control the House, thus control the purse strings. They've raised the debt limit. You just can't do more spending. Won't accept it. Joe Biden won't recognize that we allowed a Chinese spy balloon just to cross over the United States. He doesn't even think the whole damn thing matters. Well, uh, number one, you're right. We should have an open hotline. At the Bali conference, that's what the president, she and I agreed we were going to do and meet on. And then this silly balloon that was carrying 
two freight cars worth of spine equipment was flying over the United States, and it got shot down, and uh, everything changed um, in terms of talking to one another. I think you're going to see that begin to thaw very shortly. Silly balloon? Silly balloon. Is that what we say now? Silly balloon? What an unserious man he is. You didn't shoot down a spy balloon. You are afraid to take on China. Why, why, why not shoot down the spy balloon? Why not act strong for the United States of America? You will scream at a historically black college and university that white supremacy is the biggest terrorist threat. I've got spy balloons in the sky. Oh, that's not a terrorist threat. That's something else. Dude, nice. Nice pull there. Nice trying to conflate. You're talking about threats to the United States. I'm not a fan of the white supremacist. They hate me too. But I'm fully aware that the Chinese spy balloon is a bigger threat. But nope, the progressives need it to be the white supremacy. The progressives need it to be, uh, we, we, we're the ones causing the problems at the border. You see, it's our policies in Venezuela. It's our policies in Cuba. That's what's causing all the problems at the border. American policies here, American policies there. It's all our fault, don't you know? Joe Biden was told that you can't do eviction moratoriums by the Supreme Court. And he said, oh, we're going to keep it going until they shut us down. He knew how the Supreme Court was going to react. And he's like, whatever, I don't care. Didn't bother him at all. That's how much the progressives control him. And that's why this border conversation matters so greatly. Because it's more than just Joe Biden not actually caring about what happens to the country. Because on that, he doesn't give a damn. He's battling for the soul of the country while referring to people who might uh, be Republicans as white supremacists. The hell he cares about the soul of the country. Who are you lying to? He cares about the soul of the country while allowing tens of thousands of people to come in illegally. He can't even get Congress to work with him to put an end to the fentanyl trafficking. He cares about the soul of the country. The soul of the country matters to him. Your dead kid from fentanyl doesn't give a crap. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's a statement right there. But it's his. It's his statement. And the statement is compounded by these parole with conditions, 8,807 people. Yeah, the border story matters. Debt limit's important. I'm not saying no, but I won't get worked up by it. The border story Huge, and is getting no play. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. There is no organization more lost in the state of Indiana than the ACLU. Tony Katz. Tony Katz Today. It's good to be with you. I, I swear to you, I don't know what moves them. I don't know what drives them. What I know is that it's not civil liberties. When they put out tweets that read, abortion is health care, 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 that's lost. This is ridiculous, nonsense, silly, 
screaming. This isn't an argument. This isn't debate. This is just madness. This is like that woman from Nebraska who was screaming about trans people. Trans people, trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. That is a state senator in Nebraska upset that the legislature there is going to pass laws saying that you can't mutilate children. And so this is what she's chanting because that's what they're chanting outside. And she's screaming it. And she starts by talking and gets into a scream. And I'm supposed to, what, believe that she's some really honest, decent person? That she's she's really committed to the cause and she's got a lot on the ball, a lot, a lot in her mind. Stop. Abortion is health care six times in a row. Doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true. And the debate on abortion isn't this simplistic. So why do you hate people so much where you won't even engage the debate? Nebraska, they are, are signing legislation for a 12-week ban, just like North Carolina did, like many states have done. In a lot of the world, it's a 15-week ban. No one is a believer in abortion whenever, especially after birth. Infanticide is cool. Although the governor, former governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, believed it. Plenty of progressives believe it. So does Kim Jong-un. Oh, wait, that's right. That's not North Carolina. That's North Korea. Did I say hello, Tony Katz? Tony Katz today, what's going on? Uh, the ACLU of Indiana is lost. Is lost. They put out a, a tweet, stop trying to ban books. To which I responded... Stop supporting exposing eight-year-olds to graphic sexual depictions. The argument is not that, oh my gosh, look at all these people trying to ban books. The argument is, should a book that details oral and anal sex be available to an eight-year-old in a school library? And the answer is, of course, no. What's wrong with you? You want that for a kid to read? You're weird. You are weird. They are weird if they want that. As a matter of fact, they're not just weird. They're the kind of people who should have to knock on doors in their neighborhoods announcing their presence because that's in every situation exactly what we would expect. If you as a parent want to teach your kids things, my gosh, I'm not here to stop you. I would never stop you. It would never dawn on me to stop you. I don't get that say. Well, you don't get a say in that, but you get a say in whether or not a parent can allow their child to have some kind of reassignment surgery. Oh, you mean mutilation? Yeah, 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 that that society gets a say on. I don't get a say in whether or not a father yells at his kid. We get a say if a father beats on his kid or if a mother beats on their kid. Do you see the difference? That's how it works. You want to teach your kids about uh, oral sex when they're eight? You can. My kids come to me with a question. I always answer the question honestly and fully. There's a difference between that and a sexual depiction with a graphic cartoon being in a school library. A school library, not a public library. Again, a different conversation. The ACLU is not honest about these things, and I don't know why. Except, of course, you know why. Because the honesty destroys the argument and doesn't let them scream, abortion is health care, or stop banning books. No organization is more lost in Indiana than the ACLU of Indiana. And they prove it all the time. I'm Tony Katz.
Indy 500 qualifying was something else. What a weekend. But what unbelievable speed. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Alex Pillow with the poll. Chip Ganassi, I think, is getting the poll three years in a row there. It was Dixon the last two. Pillow this time around. And Kurt Darling is from the 93.1 FM WIBC newsroom and is a racing savant talking about this race, talking about qualifying, the incredible speeds that these cars found, and what the heck happened to Graham Rahal. The top three are all averaging 234. The top nine average 233 miles an hour. It was a question of they've really figured out these kits or it was just the perfect uh, track conditions, the perfect weather allowed for the perfect opportunity. It was a, a kind of an amalgamation of all three things. Uh, obviously, uh, the Ganassi cars in the Aero McLaren cars were the class of the field in qualifying as well as practice leading up to qualifying. Both of those teams got each of their four drivers into the fast 12 at the start of the day. So obviously the speed was there. And then you throw in a couple wild cards as well. Santino Ferrucci, for one, as well as Benjamin Peterson, the two AJ Foyt cars. Now the Foyt cars had not had any speed and any of the 500s kind of leading up to now. So all of a sudden, the the Foyts are back in the conversation as far as having speed. And then you have Will Power then as one of the, as the lone Penske car as well in the Fast 12. But, you know, as far as the conditions are concerned, Tony, it was a little bit warmer than it was on Saturday, but there was hardly any wind. Still, getting into the afternoon at peak track attempts, getting up there in about 127 or so. It was a little bit easier, though, for the Fast 12 and the Fast 6 guys, and then the conditions were really at their worst for the last chance qualifying guys. So and that kind of added a little bit of drama as the last chance qualifying guys had to make as much speed as they can at peak track conditions. Talking to Kurt Darling from the WIBC newsroom as we go through this uh, field of 33, and you take a look at uh, Ray Hall Racing, Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing, Catherine Legg already made the race. She's in position number 30 outside of row 10, average lap speed of 231 miles an hour. They've got four drivers. Three of them are in the bottom four. Lungard, Harvey, Ray Hall, they're all trying to fight. They're all trying to get in. They want to see, and this is his real name, bless his soul, Stingray Rob, who is, uh, I, how, how do you not pick him? My God, just on name alone. <laughs> they're trying to move him out, and they're all trying to make it. Never mind Ray Hall getting bumped, which we'll get into in a second. What's wrong with this team? Um, they just didn't have the speed. I mean, it, it. there's really no hard explanation as to why. You know, you bring what you have to the Indianapolis 500 every year, and there could be a whole bunch of different things. You know, there could be some some anomaly with the engine. You may not have the the aerodynamics right. I mean, to keep in mind, though, you're trimming the car as much as you possibly can, so it really comes down to raw mechanical speed that you get to at qualifying. And... The Ray Hall cars, all all four of them, did not have a lot of speed coming into this. Now they were looking pretty, they were looking decent in race trim, but remember, you still have to qualify for the race, and that is a completely different ball game. And as far as raw speed is concerned, the equipment that the Ray Hall cars brought this year just didn't add up to what the rest of the field had. They didn't crack 230 in their average speed. When you take a look at, at Lungard, when you take a look at Jack Harvey and at Graham Rahal, none of them 
had a four lap average of 230. Catherine Legg had a lap four lap average of 231. But when it comes down to it, that final position, which Jack Harvey won as time expires, he's at 229.166. Graham Rahal at 229.159. The difference is 0. .007. I was trying to look. I don't know what's closer. You know, and when you go back to the history, I haven't, I haven't yet, yet to figure out when there's been a closer uh, uh, amount of speed between in and out of the 500. Well, yeah, it's it's certainly something to you'd really have to deep dive into the rec- the records of uh, qualification results to really see if that is. But still, as far as I can remember, you know, and keep in mind we've only had a handful of bump years in the last decade or so, depending on how many entries you have. But still, you're right, Tony. It is prob- it is one of the closest, if not the closest difference between 33rd and 34th entry that I have witnessed in quite some time but it was truly remarkable how Jack Harvey was able to throw down that last run at the last possible second and keep in mind you have to you kind of have to take into some of the engineering aspects of this as well these cars operate at peak at peak efficiency when they are cooler if you have a hot engine, it does not perform as well in qualifying trim. So that's why you saw on his de facto second run, Jack Harvey going out there at minimum speed just to kind of cool off the engine before he took off, took off on his third actual run. That did not have enough speed. And so then they make one last aerodynamic change to the car with a hot engine going back out there and then laying down just enough speed to get into the race. That is truly remarkable to say the least, but still you have to feel for Graham Ray Hall. He handled it. He handled, he was a class act in handling it, but it is certainly, it's certainly tough to be bumped from the field. We saw that a couple years back from both James Hinchcliffe and Pippa Mann. That Pippa Mann interview is still one of the most difficult and heart wrenching things I'd ever been a part of in radio. That rough, oh, she was honest and raw and, and I, I'm I'm a fan of her. I'm still a fan of hers uh, on that. Just just terrific uh, in in terms of I, I she's got a fighting spirit that I totally totally dig. Even if I don't agree with her politically or anything else, uh, that doesn't matter. But when we talk about the race, you got to talk about Indiana and the cash it brings not only to Indianapolis but how it impacts the whole state. Gary Dick joins us right now from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Personally, you can follow him at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick. On uh, Twitter, you spoke with Mark Miles, who runs uh, Penske uh, Entertainment there and, of course, has been with the race for a great number uh, of years. We should get into that conversation you had with him, uh, but it can't be... Can it be truly, truly quantified how much money the 500 brings into the city? Yeah, it, it is tough to put a number on it. And in fact, I think the last time a, a study uh, was done uh, on the impact of the Indianapolis 500, I think they picked it around $300 million. That's, that's uh, maybe a decade old. Look for a new report to come out perhaps later this week. So we'll get a new read on what that or the, the perceived uh, uh, estimated economic impact is, but it, but it is substantial. Uh, obviously, the race, the month of May, everything around it, and in my conversation with Mark Miles, and certainly you would expect him to be upbeat and to be positive. But in his view, the momentum around not just May, but the IndyCar Series is the best he's seen in his 11 years as serving as CEO, essentially CEO of the IndyCar Series. Uh, he's looking at all the metrics, ticket sales, Ticket sales for the race, as an example, uh, according to Doug Bowles, uh, last year was the best ticket 
uh, uh, year in uh, ever at the at the Indianapolis 500, with the exception of the 100th running. This year, ticket sales are up from that number. So a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, and again, that's that's cash, people spending money uh, in and around Speedway throughout the month of May and beyond. The the money uh, spend, you know, is certainly from from the people coming to visit the hundreds of thousands yeah. of people who show up uh, for for the race. We see that money pour into hotels and pour in, into restaurants. There, I want to get more into that in a second. But there's also the money from the investment of those groups that have decided. Well, yes, Indianapolis is the racing capital of of the world. Speedway is the place to be. Or we're gonna uh, head out to to Zionsville, where Ray Hall has built uh, their world, and you're seeing other people come in and build their headquarters. Has that caught on? Are we about to see a bigger explosion of those in racing and uh, and in ancillary businesses to racing build headquarters or some type of offices here? Yeah, I don't think, Tony, you can overstate th- that fact that there there is momentum around that investment. It's estimated there are 300, 350 motorsports-related businesses, uh, headquarters, vendors, suppliers, and others located mostly in central Indiana, but I think it touches almost every Indiana county. You mentioned um, uh, Ray Hall in Zionsville, Andretti uh, Autosport in Fishers. To give you an example, and we've done this show the entire month of May at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, focused on the business of motorsports. Ray Hall, an amazing facility in Zionsville, $20 million investment. Okay, that's $20 million. That's a, that's a big number. Andretti is investing $200 million. In, in his facility, uh, and they're trying to get a Formula One team. So he could could have a Formula One team partnering with Cadillac and General Motors, could have a Formula One team headquartered here potentially uh, as well. So that investment, it's been here for a long time, but there seems to be some momentum around that. Uh, Errol McLaren uh, has, has committed to building a place uh, in Whitestown, uh, you know, in that, Zion, that Boone County area as well. So we're seeing more and more investment and again, that's dollars for construction and, and, and people. The Andretti Autosport investment—they're looking at. Uh, I think it's. I think it's five. It might be five hundred employees. In fact, it is five hundred employees at that facility. They're building in Fishers, so big, uh, big dollars. Talking to Gary Dick of InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, we we talk about the money that that comes in. When you are uh, Penske, uh, when you are uh, the Speedway, first there's the conversation of what we do with the Speedway to add more opportunities for Central Indiana and Indiana as a whole To because it's not only about dollars for the local area, it's about attraction to the entirety of the state and people realizing there are these things going on in, in Indiana. Uh, so that's about what the track does as a whole, but specifically – for uh for this race what are we hearing about uh attendance this year you know you yep. you, you spoke to to, to mark miles and want to dig more into that conversation as i said about um hearing uh, about the the attendance conversations that things are going everything's right uh, clicking on all cylinders i believe is what he said yeah. but did he give a real definition of what that means and what it might mean to all the surrounding businesses and how that permeates out through the state 
Yeah, yeah, no question about it. Again, ticket sales, you said, are, are up uh, from last year, which uh, which was a record year with the exception of, uh, of the 100th uh, running. But the, the other metrics that they look at, uh, certainly ticket sales, very important. But in this age of, uh, of social media, they're, they're looking at, at, at streaming and social media. Uh, the um, uh, docu-series, uh, the, I think it's 100 Days to Indie, that they uh, they launched. I think they're on the episode three this week uh, as well. Those types of, uh, of things are all, according to Mark Miles, looking up significantly uh, up uh, from where they had been or if it's a new launch uh, up from where they expected it to be. So those are the things that they look at. And, again, as you look at a series in, in terms of the IndyCar series, you look at an industry, motorsports, uh, it, let's not for, forget that it's driven by sponsorships and, you know, with the economy, a lot of concerns about that. But as we speak, uh, Mark Miles said that, you know, the uh, the numbers are very strong in terms of sponsors and those wanting to support uh, the series and support the industry. And that's positive. That, that has a trickle down impact in a place like like uh, Indianapolis. You know, you look at NASCAR's headquartered in North Carolina, IndyCar open wheel racing, certainly here in uh, here in Indianapolis. Uh, we didn't mention Brownsburg. They've got a, a whole motorsports development that's underway uh, right around Raceway Park. And that whole area looks to uh, really uh, boom uh, and become uh, a center for motorsports as well. So lots going on. In Indiana, the unemployment rate dropped to 3%. You've got the story at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. We've been staying at 3.1%. It's It could be, as, as anything, uh, it's very slight. It could just be a statistical rounding error at, at this stage of the game. What are you hearing about from the Department of Workforce Development? What are you hearing about uh, from the state about where they think employment is, where the needs are, and what this new data tells us? Well, it's across the board. I mean, you, you, it's very positive to have a low unemployment rate, but at the same time, when you're looking at, at essentially full employment, companies, you and I have talked about it a lot. Everybody talks about it. There is a, a, a workforce shortage, especially skilled workers, and it doesn't um, you know, permeate just one industry. It's across the board. You talk to tech companies. You talk to who are looking at other tech companies to steal employees and uh, that kind of thing uh, going on. The advanced manufacturing sector, very important. Obviously, the Indiana, one of the most manufacturing-intensive states in the country, and it's about getting workers the skills they need. A lot of people from the state to the community, uh, community college system uh, four-year colleges uh, and universities are getting in on it uh, as well in terms of that education piece and tailoring education to the needs uh, of Indiana companies. Uh, not going to be solved anytime soon. It continues to be a challenge uh, for workers around the, or for companies around the state. And again, Indiana's not alone. This is a, a national situation. Most states are, are dealing with it as well. My thanks to Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com. My thanks to Kurt Darling in the WIBC newsroom, WIBC.com. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. It is the most important week, and it's very unfortunate that Joe Biden has waited this long. This is another example of his lack of leadership. I don't know what he was expecting would happen. The Republicans in the House passed a bill in a timely manner, and the, the Senate Democrats and the president did nothing. And they've waited and waited and waited, and now we're past the deadline that we really needed uh, to have 
presented a bill in a timely manner. Remember, uh, House Republicans want to give everyone an opportunity to do the unthinkable, to give everyone an opportunity to read the bill so we can know what, what's in the bill, so the media can know what's in the bill. That's called transparency. Joe Biden's used to just uh, being in a back room, smoke-filled room, and coming up with something at the last minute. But we're not going to budge on spending cuts. Somebody has to be the adult in the room, and I'm proud of the work that the House Republicans have done and Speaker McCarthy has done in presenting a, a fiscally responsible bill. I think that's what the American people want. And I know that's what the American taxpayers want. Yeah, I'm still not getting worked up about the debt limit issues. It's going to get resolved and things will get paid or it's not going to get resolved and things won't get paid. But for you and I to get worked up over it, it's just unworthy. But I'm certainly not listening to people like Senator Chris Van Hollen the House has to exercise the will of the House and pass a better debt limit. You mean the will of the Democrats, because as Representative Comer just pointed out there, Republicans have already passed something. They've already increased the debt limit, just kept the spending levels the same. So if you're not going to do your job, I'm not going to get worked up by it. I'm just going to replace you, or at least try like hell. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.